Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Roger Federer has made his return to the court in Doha. He won his first match, lost his second match, and has withdrawn from Dubai. So we are going to unpack what we saw in Roger's return. Just one topic on this episode of Three, uh, but it was uh, certainly one that that captured the the tennis world and all eyes were on Roger and he made a a pretty good showing for himself in my opinion Joel right off the bat in that first round match against Dan Evans it's funny that he ends up playing Dan Evans who he had practiced with a bunch so we were wondering about which is better was it better for Evans was it better for Federer who gains from that and uh Evans played pretty well I mean I think for about 99 percent of that match he was not intimidated by the Federer aura he played him a bunch and he had his own version of his game you know Evans Got a nice, he's got the slice backhand. He's got the big forehand, kind of a player in certain, some of the Roger tactics. And, but I think that was comfortable for Roger too, because it wasn't quite the, um, the grinding two-hander and the David Goffin or Nishikori or Novak, of course, that would be uh, hanging with him. So at the key points in that match, um, Evans blinked. He blinked. They had his three all, had a couple of break points. And one of them, Roger hit a, hit a good serve. You, you know, you know, Roger Federer is really, needing to win big when he starts hitting serves bigger. Right? Bring out the serve. And then on another break point, hits a forehand cross-court drop shot. And there were enough things of the two nights. Oh, right. Here's Roger Federer playing the music we know <clears throat> so well and so and so enjoy. So he just kind of squeaked out of that match. And Evans, I think, at the, at the 1%, which Federer occupies the 1%, then Evans blinked. And, uh, you know, Evans 5-6 opens the game with a double fault. You're serving at five six, and you begin with a game with a double fault. That is not a good sign. Amy, what did you make of that match? I thought that um, he looked remarkable for everything that he's been through and not having played a match in over a year. And I looked at some of the numbers, which I can get for both matches, which I can get into in just a bit once we talk about the second match. Um, after the match, I listened very carefully to what he said in the interviews and I went over the transcripts and he did make a mention of pain, essentially. He was asked about pain and said something that kind of flew under the radar. He said, I don't know if it's just muscular or what. And I think he was referring to the knee there. So you can tell from his comments that it's still unsure. It's still kind of a, a cloudy picture. And he really wants to take some time and see how his body recovers. Well, there was certainly soreness going into the second match. So physically, this this was never going to be a, a seamless exercise, but certainly it seemed like that played a big role and especially in the outcome of the second match. But I guess 
the the first thing is that we saw a lot of flashes of what looked just like the Roger Federer that we had been watching before the injury, having two match points in in the Wimbledon final, making the Australian Open semifinal with one leg, one functioning leg. You know, we, we were still really seeing maybe not the consistency, but in in small portions, we were seeing that same guy. I think we're going to see that forever. I mean, I think long after he's retired, I mean, these guys, the timing and the ball striking never quite goes. What goes is the movement and the strength. And I think we saw, you know, with Federer, it's interesting. Who who do you notice is more when they're compromised? The glider like Federer, who it doesn't seem like he's hurt. He seems pretty smooth. Or is it more apparent when someone who's more of a, of a grinder is hurt and they're just not getting there? I mean, Federer, it's such... There's such micro calibrations between that ability to take away time and to be able to jump on a ball. And in the in the Evans match, there are a few times you could see some of the shanks and some of the time because you know, he's a finely tuned Mercedes better that way. So it wasn't going to be as easy for him to just come back. You know, he's got a lot of different plays he runs. The second match a little different. I think that serve is such a big part of Federer's game. And he made the comment that he wanted to see how the knee would feel when he came down from the serve. And just from my eyes, he looks like he still has the, the hops that he's always had. He still gets air on all his, his uh, shots, including the serve. Um, but it's interesting to me that that was a concern. How would the knee hold up when coming down from my serve? Well, when you read that Pierre Paganini said when they started, better he had him doing stretches that would be easy for a 70-year-old. So that gives you an idea of where it started for Roger. And as always is the case with these guys and their injuries and their teams, we'll never quite know the extent of it, of how, how debilitated he was when he came back from these surgeries. What was going on? Unless he wants to tell us, but uh, like, like Andy did with, with his documentary, and I think Novak's working on a documentary as well. So this is the, I think this is the new age where players... Uh, get their stories out on their own terms instead of relying on journalists to do it. Well, that's true. They, they do, but then it's their terms. So then it's like, it's not, we don't know how comprehensive it's going to be and how much 100%. they wish to. I mean, for example, we just learned speaking of Murray, Murray just had a fourth child and a lot of people didn't know that he, that was that the he had a second or a third. So, <laughs> he has three mates and four children. Okay. Federer has four kids. Okay. It's interesting to see. I, I, I hate to digress to a completely, you know, off the often left field topic, but how about the week that Oprah um, interviews Harry and Meghan and the tabloids are being discussed and, and how that works. Andy Murray has, has really been able to keep private, which is, which is great. I'm, I'm happy for him because I, I think that's good for, for anyone's happiness. Um, I think it speaks to the pandemic, you know, everybody's just been locked down and shut in and, and so the, the tabloid people don't get to get out and take pictures and see baby bumps and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're, as we come out of the pandemic, we're finding a lot out. Okay, back to serves. Um, I find that the serve is the, the shot that takes the most muscular development. And uh, I think just physically, you're using every muscle in your body and it's an awkward motion. It's not natural. It's an overhead motion, a lot of stress on the muscles. 
and Federer's serve speed was down in the second match against Basilashvili. He said he came in with a sore shoulder, and it's fascinating because you absolutely can say with 110% certainty that Federer was on the practice courts hitting hundreds and hundreds and Mm -hmm. hundreds of serves. But -hmm. when you get out there and it's time to play a real match, the shoulder is still sore. You, You cannot account for the tension that is in that is in your arm. You cannot account for that extra five percent power that you reach for when you're in a match. And I thought that was illuminating, and I kind of learned from from seeing that. Or the opponent's turn. I'm sorry. Go on, Abe. Well, I I think part of it is hormonal. I mean, the stress hormone is cortisol, and and you don't know the effects that the hormones, the toll that they take on the musculature and all that. Um, that stress and um, you know, just being in that, that tension can uh, affect the body in ways that we don't even know. I also think that with the serve, the, uh, you know, there's hitting serves and there's playing points when you've got another guy returning the serve and the guy is someone who wants to beat you. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately about serves and the role. People say often of certain serves, oh, it's just to start the point. That implies that what's happening is going to be neutral after. Then I think we talked about this last time. Look at the serve Consider the serve first down in football. Does your serve help you get to second and six or second and five? Or like a lot of players, if your serve is only getting you to second and eight, I'm not saying this about Federer, I'm just talking overall. You're not getting a lot of help from it. And now you're pressured and now that puts pressure on the other stroke. So, so the significance of the serve, I think there's a whole dialogue to be had in the world and we can have it too over time about what the serve is designed to accomplish. And you're right about Federer look how much that serve, how important it is for him in, in setting up points and in, in some freebies also, and a whole bunch of things that he uses it for, for strikeouts, for ground balls, you know, occasionally hit someone, all of that. Well, I think you guys are going to be intrigued by some of the stuff that I looked at. Do you want to yeah, get that. into that? Yeah. Bring okay. That. okay, good, good. So, um, what I did was I took a look at his some of his career metrics on hard court. So I could have kind of a, a gold standard of what he's done on hard court. And the, the surface speed in Doha was um, kind of a, a mid-paced hard court. It wasn't the fastest. It wasn't the slowest. Um, and, and Federer himself remarked on, you know, just needing to get used to the speed in Doha to understand about the surface. Um, so just looking at the stat sheets, um, one of the things that jumps out at you is aces and double faults. He had 13 aces versus Evans and 12 versus Basilisvili. Um, so that's good. That's a good number of aces. That's very much in line with what Federer typically does. Double faults, guys. Did that one jump out at you? Do you know? Well, was it zero in the Evans match? And zero in the other match. Oh, how about that? Yeah. So, but, but the question is, and I've discussed this many times with, um, statisticians, is it good to have zero double faults? I would say no. I would say it's a little bit like you ought to have maybe, it's not good to have too many, but right. it's, a little bit like first, it's a little bit like the high first serve percentage. If the first serve percentage is very, very high. Maybe you're not trying to do as much with your serve. So your second serve, right? No, no, no. Right, so. No, no, so, no, 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 your first serve. If your first serve percentage is too high, you're not 
you might not be attempting as much with your first serve as you could. So it's like you're, you're jacking up your number, but you're getting it's second and nine, it's second and eight. You know, you're not doing enough with it. So, but on the other hand, I mean, Roger Federer, okay, so if he'd had two double faults, would he have had a better serving day? I mean, what were your thoughts? You watched that, that second match, Amy. With, uh, well, let me, let me take it a step further. So zero double faults in a match in which he had 13 aces, that could be an aberration. Zero double faults in two matches, that start to maybe not look like an aberration. So if you're not going for as much, if you're, if you're just sort of, Roger Federer doesn't ever spin in his second serve, but let's just say for argument's sake that you're, you're being extra safe on your second serve and not double faulting and you're, you're taking something off of it. Um, what would be the logical conclusion of that, guys? What would happen? Lower points, one percentage. Bingo. So I looked at his um, total service points, one. For his career on hard court, he's 70%. Um, for the uh, Evans match, he was 70%. Uh, for the Basilis Vili match, he was uh, 61%. So he was down, but he lost the match. So that could just be kind of a causation type of thing. Set. He also lost the second set badly. Right, right. Uh, first serve points won. For his career, 78%. For the Evans match, 79%. For the Basilas Fili match, 67%. Again, he lost that match, but you can tell for the Evans match, he was actually slightly up. So on, on the surface at first blush, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with first serve, okay? Plus he's got the, the good tally of aces. Now, second serve points won. For his career on hard courts, he's 57%, right? In the Evans match, he's down, even though he won the match, 53%. And for the Basilas Fili match, he uh, it was down 50%, down to 50%. So that's actually pretty s significant statistically. So second serve points won, and you, you add that to the fact that he didn't double fault, then maybe there was something going on on second serve that needs to be improved. Well, there's also, but there's also this whole, that's true. And there's this whole thing about how though the opponents know Roger's back, he's hitting a second serve. I want to see how well he moves. What's my, what's my return play here that makes me not have to be as adventurous as maybe, you know, it's like, for example, if I'm, if you're playing someone who hasn't played in a while and they're hitting you second serves, it behooves you to make to, to borrow the page from Gill's Spanish playbook and play a fairly good deep return and attempt to win the point. So you don't have to spend as much money on a return. You don't have to slash out to the corners and then miss and lose the point like that, right? I mean, it's interesting. Like you see these Federer matches, you see, you know, he had match points again. He's he's lost quite a lot of matches from match points up in his career, well over 20. Yeah. Yeah. It's, intriguing and on that very much point again we're, we're putting them under the the microscope but that's that's what we like to do on this show we turn kind of passively you know again that's where the and again that's where you wonder about pain and movement and the ability to push off through the ball could could the return be a little more decisive could the return a little deeper i mean it's so and i think it's interesting compared to novak and rafa who mostly okay big point return high deep high deep margin depth, thick part of the court. Federer's got a whole other gestalt. I mean, maybe that's our next shot to explore 
is how these guys deploy the return of serve in their game. Because Federer, he sometimes he intentionally wants to return short low sometimes, deep to a corner, chip forehand, a lot of parts and pieces more than the other two, don't you think? Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Yeah, for sure. But I think on the match point, I think he... What, what did you think, Amy? Did you think... I thought Federer got it pretty low and short in the court. I thought it was a kind of a tricky forehand. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it was a great return. But I don't think it was an easy forehand that Vasilishvili had to come up with. I think that one match point not converted in in his second match back after not playing for a year is uh, too low a sample size to indicate sure. a trend. However, I did see this graphic today that he had like 28 unconverted match points to Rafa's, I don't know, it was something like uh, 10 or six or eight or something. And, and Novak had like three. I mean, so clearly, and we know that Roger also uh, does not have a stellar record on break points converted. And similarly, in these matches, I think he was two of nine on break point opportunities unconverted. 22%, which is also, you know, off of I'm his gonna, historic I'm low. With, <laughs> I'm going to take issue with the return of cert with, with break points as a data point. And I'm going to have my whole life, I think this. It's not like left on base in baseball. In other words, I don't, if you hold serve quite, quite well, it matters is when you got that break point. There's a better metric. We can work to a better metric. In other words, if I hold, hold, and I cash in my first break point against someone when they're serving at one, two, and I keep holding. I don't care if I lose 14 more break points. I'm pushing you against the wall, and it's not really so. I'm not gonna. That's not a Federer. I'm not. That, that's not quite a metric that I so that I'm so smitten with. I do want to go back though to the match point Federer had and ask you a question, Gil. You've got. You're the one here with the Western grip, the semi-Western grip of us. You fielded your share of of slices, or maybe you haven't. Uh, I'll show you one one day, but. <laughs> and, and, how is that for you? Like, again, it's, it's a little bit touch and go when Federer hits that shot because if the guy gets to it soon enough, it's okay. It's a moderately low short ball. It's not, it's not, it doesn't, the slice backhand has a, you know, the, the top swing forehand jumps, even if it's slow, it's high, but the slice, it kind of can sit. So I don't know what's, tell me your experience of fielding slices. Are they all nasty or how does that work for you? No, um, you know, as first, I mean, I'm pretty comfortable like Basilashvili is, by the way, generating the pace, generating the racket speed to bring the ball up and down. So I don't right. mind if the ball's low and if I have lots of time to find my forehand, especially if you get a slice to my backhand, you've done really well, meaning that's, that's what you want to do to me. Uh, but if I can hit a forehand off of your slice, I'm generally pretty happy. The only thing is with a return like Federer hit, is the the footwork's tricky it's i think it's tricky to move inside the court there and now you better hit a pretty good forehand or you're going to get passed so i think that return forced basilishvili to the net 
Now he hit a good enough forehand where he didn't even need to hit a volley. But I, I think the pressure comes from not the shot itself, but the fact that, well, now it needs to be an approach shot against my will. Right. He kind of did the draw you to net. Yeah. Thing. Right. But best of, he was on it. Best of field. He was on, he was on better shot and he hit it pretty well. And then Roger yeah. kind of was it. And this gets to maybe the better movement and the pain, like how well, how nimble he feels because, you know, covering an approach shot to hit a passing shot is a tough thing to do, even yeah. for Roger Federer. He got tired, right? I mean, this is... Yes. I think you that's pretty You saw it in clear. the second set uh, yeah. against Basilis Feely. Yeah. And we, we, you know, we, we talked about how there's, there's no substitute for match play. You can practice all you want. You can work out. You can get on the exercise mm -hmm. bike. It's just not a match. Uh, with that being said, I also think, you know, this is... Uh, this also has to do with age. I think if, if Roger was in his twenties, he, he could probably, he could probably pull this off and uh, look a little bit better right off the bat. It might be tougher to get an older engine warm again. And that's oh, true no, for it, cars no, there's too. No might. There's no might. I mean, we know this. And, and again, he had the incredible Renaissance in 2017 when he wins Australia and Wimbledon yeah. and Australia again, this is now we're, now we're four years later. And so it's a little different and we're going to see. And I also think Federer, he's really thinking now there's one, all I want healthy for Wimbledon, healthy for Wimbledon, healthy. Yeah. And if there's match play, that's good too. But if the body's not feeling it, I mean, there's even a scenario, even though I don't think this will happen, even a scenario, okay, you know what? Healthy, healthy, stay healthy. Eh, I'm not going to go in Rome, not going to go in Monte Carlo, not going to go eh, clay. Okay. Hala. Okay. Yes. Grass court tune up Wimbledon. But I suspect he'll play some clay. I think that's the more likely scenario. Yeah, we, we have to talk about this in the future, but I don't know if I like the put all the chips in in the Wimbledon basket. I think that's chip. a lot it's of not pressure. The in the basket. But it's it's not the chips in the basket. It's the managing of the body. And that's sure. fine, the the focus and the playing style. But I know I think the more likely scenario is that he, he cherry picks some clay, don't you think? I just think that it's pretty bold of him to say that he's putting his chips all in that basket. I mean, he's not even pretending that he would vie for for uh, Roland Garros. He might play it just like like you guys have pointed out um, as a means to get himself in shape. But he's at this point, he's not even pretending that it's about anything else except for Wimbledon. He's well, saying that. About him. He's saying what we're thinking. He's candid enough. You know, he's not he's not. He's like, and, and he did that. He's done that before. I mean, he skipped Roland Garros for a few other years and he's, and, and he's very uh, prudent and pragmatic about that. And he's just being, he's just saying what a lot of us are thinking anyway. Right. Well, he's, uh, he's withdrawn from Dubai. So again, I think that just signals that his, his recovery, he feels the pace of his recovery and he just doesn't want to jump right back into match play. Uh, but I, I think what's what's clear at this point, and Joel, you said it right off the bat, is that this is going to be about where Roger, what what level can Roger get to physically? Because you you just you saw the shot making, you saw the serve, you saw the creativity, the the even the 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 artistry in his not only his shot selection but also the the technique and the brilliant way that he moves around the court efficiently all of that is there but uh roger said after his match if, if you can't play for two and a half hours 
like he successfully did against Dan Evans, you can't win. Um, so it's, it's just the path to getting to the level that he needs to be at physically. And this also speaks to something about tennis, you know, in team sports play a few minutes of the game, you know, you play a, a series, the quarterback comes yeah. in the second half, uh, the basketball player plays 15 minutes and he phases his way in, but in tennis, you got to pitch a complete game and, uh, it's a tough, yeah, it's a tough go. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he continues to manage his training. I mean, he'll, he'll go back to his training and see what he does with his physical team. And again, we don't know, never fully know the extent. I mean, he, like all these players, he's had his share of certain kinds of injuries. Grant, he's never retired from a match, but he's had injuries. So how is he, how is he manage them? And how does he stay careful enough? When the, when the lockdown hit after the pandemic, we all, I think, experienced more time off the court than we would normally ever take. And uh, I just think uh, we, we love to kind of bring it back to the regular player. And I'm curious when we stepped back onto the court, what was that feeling like? And, and, and in what ways did you struggle, Amy, when you, when you took a break from tennis and had to come back? You're assuming I took a break, Gil. Did you, did, did, were you right <laughs> no, out there? I didn't. Oh, that's great. I didn't, I, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I, I, in fact, I got kind of annoyed with the USTA when they sent out the email saying basically, you can't play anymore because I just had this <laughs> inkling that it was a socially distant sport and I was going to play outdoors because it was spring and I was going to play with my family and and that's what I did. Um, but I, I will say that um, I've recently started playing competitive singles again after playing a lot of doubles and it's really hard to recover from a match these days. I I, I am amazed at how people play tournaments like with very little rest and it occurred to me like wouldn't it have been nice if Roger had a day off in between those two matches mm -hmm. Joel? yeah the coming back you know I I whenever I have gone a while without playing tennis it takes a few times to regain sort of the coordination part of it but um you know to kind of just a little bit to kind of feel the strokes Again, but this last time in the pandemic, less so, partially because some of the work I've done in my lessons, and maybe also you take into for us the pros too. But I think for us, it should be even more so the gratitude aspect. For the pros, it's certainly gratitude, but it's also livelihood. So they've got that pressure. For recreational players, any recreational player who comes back to play and isn't mostly just grateful. That's that's all it should be because there's nothing else at stake. It reminds me of all the times I've played certain league matches and so I'll oh, play this play this combo league because that the those results don't count and I go and what do the other ones count for count for what yeah so and I'm not saying look I'm a voracious competitor I like competing and I like all that kind of stuff but I just think I think recreationally maybe this pandemic and it'll be interesting to learn about the people who are contributing to this resurgence in play what the attitude really is you know they're they're not coming back so they can play league tennis so what's going on at these communities? And how, I mean, Amy, we'll, we'll be talking about that a lot. I mean, you play a lot of league tennis, so we can see the attitudes. Or is it just kind of like, okay, back to the usual thing. Why aren't I playing more? Why do I have to play with this person? Who's this on the team? You know, just well, it, it, that's just sort of silly stuff. But uh, participation is up, I think, in the United States, 22%, if I'm not right. mistaken. Mm -hmm. And it, it'll be interesting to me to see 
do they hold on to these people? And, you know, junior racket sales are up. Do they hold on to these kids? Or are we going to lose them to online gaining, gaming? And, um, you know, with Federer in the twilight of his career, um, we're going to need some more stars to emerge so that um, we can attract these people and keep them. Well, I think though it's interesting. I don't. I, I'm not quite sure always what attracts people. I mean, stars. There's not always the the connection between great players at the top and participation is not proven. I mean, you know, we had four great Americans in the '90s. That didn't necessarily spell participation. And other times we have, like for example, we've had a pandemic, as you as you noted a while ago, Amy. Tennis great for social distancing. So, I think that the keeping in factor. Most, a lot of it comes down to finding people to play with. So that's the biggest reason why people often leave tennis, can't find people to play with them. So how does the community tennis organizer, whether it's a club or a park or whatever, do that more? Because you talk about the economic health of tennis. Friends and media will talk about TV ratings and circulation and clicks. And then, um, and then people in the equipment business will talk about racket sales and, mm -hmm. and ball sales. So yeah. they're, they're not always together. So it's interesting. Yeah. That, there is a, like a version of Tinder to find uh, players, your level, which i which I think is such a great idea. I mean, it's funny also, it's kind of funny, but it's also a good idea. <laughs> I, I, I had a swipe, swipe left if you don't like their forehand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, one day offline, I'll tell you guys my experience on tennisdate.com. Ooh. Yeah. That's wow, a whole okay. separate podcast. Yeah. That's All right. I didn't know that existed. Oh, I know you don't. I'm glad you don't. You're not supposed to. <laughs> I found it out. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, going back to my original question, I've always found that the the small adjustment, the footwork, just being in the right position to hit the ball, that's what's hard when I when I haven't been on the court for a while. Um, you know, I can my forehand doesn't go anywhere. If I'm in the position to hit it, I hit it well, pretty much. Backhand's a little bit less nat uh, less natural, so that's a little bit tougher. So, but mostly the movement would be the answer to my question. All right, that'll do it uh, for this episode of three. Make sure that you leave us a like, perhaps leave a comment and subscribe on YouTube. We are also available on all podcast platforms and we greatly appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And we will see you next time on the next episode of three.